The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Our gift to you, we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 18. If you open just somewhat to the middle, you'll probably maybe in the Psalms. Just keep paging to the right a little bit until you see Jeremiah. The page are the chapters, the small numbers are the verse numbers. We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 18. And we'll read the entire chapter together. It's, it's not particularly long. Uh, also, to point your attention to um, just a, a, a little sermon schedule card uh, that Taylor printed out for us, uh, which was inside of your worship guide that you got this morning. Uh, these are helpful to have. Just keep them. We, we arranged this a little bit. So if you had one from earlier this year, this is a little bit more updated, as you might be able to see. Uh, this is a great resource if you're reading along or trying to kind of get a head start on what we're studying any particular Sunday. Uh, you'll see there's a two in there where I'll be out of the country. Um, probably Colossians on the 19th from Paul Abdullah, one of the elders at Stafford Baptist. And then Jake's preaching on the 26th, so he'll give you a heads up closer to that when he determines what he's preaching. Um, and then the Advent series that we're doing will actually be in Luke chapters 1 and 2, so you can go ahead and read that as well. We'll be working our way through uh, those first couple chapters. So keep this in your Bible. Replace the one you already have. Um, and it is a help not just to your own soul, but it's a help to me that in my own preparation, I know other people are praying through and thinking about the text that we're studying, and uh, you'll be more prepared as you come and, uh, and hear God's Word. So, yeah, keep that in your Bible or with you um, as you study and pray. That being said, let's begin with prayer, and then we'll, we'll study and read. Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you for the Word which we give our, our t- attention to and we devote ourselves to the teaching of. We pray particularly, God, that the time now would be spent uh, seeking truth and beauty within the Scripture, that we would lay aside all the distractions and the difficulties of our world, and we would ask, God, that through your Spirit, you would open our mind and heart to receive what it is we are called here to hear and receive this morning. I pray particularly for those who are here, not here because they're sick, I think of my own wife, I think of others, uh, uh, Mandolin and, and their children. Uh, Father, we pray that you would encourage them, comfort them. For those who are taking care of sick children, that they would have uh, the stamina to, to love and serve well over the next few hours, um, and that they would, maybe by your grace, be able to find time to rest and pray or even hear and, and uh, listen along with us. We pray also for those who are not here because they're, they're traveling or other circumstances have taken them away. Lord, we pray that you would, again, encourage them and know they are absent. Also, Lord, we pray for those who are not here because of sin or neglect. Uh, we pray that you would just caution and rebuke them gently by your Spirit, to draw them back to yourself, and restore them to fellowship, not only with the church, but with you, most importantly. So, Father, we ask for all of this now over the next 45 minutes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 18. I'll read starting in verse 1, and then I invite you to give thanks along with me. When I say, this is the word of the Lord, and you may say, thanks be to God. Jeremiah 18, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. And so I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken thus turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build it and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight and not listening to my voice, then I will relent from the good that I had intended to do to it. Now, therefore, say to the men of Judah, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. But they will say, This is all in vain. We will follow our own plans. We 
will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, thus says the Lord, ask from among the nations who has heard the like of this. The virgin Israel has done a horrible thing. Does the snow of Lebanon leave the crags of the Syrian? Do the mountain waters run dry, the cold flowing streams? But my people have forgotten me. They make offerings to false gods. roads into the walk into the side roads not on the highway making their land a horror a thing to be hissed at forever everyone who passes by is horrified and shakes his head like the east wind I will scatter them before the enemy I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their calamity and then they said come let us make plots against Jeremiah for the law shall not perish from the priest, nor the counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come, let us strike him with the tongue, and let us not pay attention to any of his words. Jeremiah prays, Hear me, O Lord, and listen to the voice of my adversaries. Should good be repaid with evil? Yet they have dug a pit for my life. Remember how I stood before you to speak good for them, to turn away your wrath from them. Therefore, deliver up their children to famine. Give them over to the power of the sword. Let their wives become childless and widowed. May their men meet death by pestilence. Their youth be struck down by the sword in battle. May a cry be heard from their houses when you bring the plunderer suddenly upon them. For they have dug a pit to take me and laid snares for my feet. Yet you, O Lord, know all their plotting to kill me. Forgive not their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Chapter 18 in the book of Jeremiah might be one of the most famous of the entire book. And you could see why, particularly these first 12 verses, is a great scene in which God calls Jeremiah to go down to the potter's house and observe what happens. And there we see that the potter, as he turns to clay, beginning to make one vessel, is interrupted. The clay, for whatever reason, fails, spoils, and goes to ruin. And the potter then makes a new vessel out of it. And God says, this is what I'm doing with Israel. If I want to change my decision, my will, my mind about what I do with one nation or another, it's my prerogative. It's my right. Judah is on one course. I've set a course for them. I'm planning to make them into one vessel. But if they return for my plans for disaster. This can be a hard passage sometimes for Christians to make today, particularly those of us who are being taught and raised as we ought to be in the classical orthodox that God doesn't change his mind. That he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that he says even in the Old Testament that God is not like man that he should change his mind. And then we read throughout the Bible, however, that there are several instances where God very well seems to change his mind. In fact, he says here, some translations, if you have an older one like the KJV, will say here that God will repent of his decisions. Well, that's a strange wording. The ESV puts it relent. Some may say, I will change my mind. The idea here, though, is that God says he will do one thing, but on the condition of another, does something else. And sometimes that comes at a surprise to us. Well, how do Christians make sense of passages like this? Well, we have to do so by taking note just what Paul tells us to do in Romans chapter 11 that we must note both the kindness and the severity of God. That this is not a theological treatise about the nature of God, about whether he declares one thing to always be, and if he can't ever change his mind from one perspective over not. Jeremiah here isn't writing a systematic theology. He's not writing a doctrinal treatise on whether God is truly immutable or not, to borrow a fancy theological term, which means can he change. This is not a conversation about the openness of God, if he knows the future or the free will of man. Those conversations are important and intriguing. But for Jeremiah, the point here is very clear, that God intends for him to send a clear message to Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that if they really repent, God 
But if they return to God, if they relinquish and forsake their evils, they will avoid disaster. That's the plain truth of the matter. And that's what the potter is meant to demonstrate, that God can change. God can change what he says he will do. Now, in the larger scope of things, will it always have been God's plan that disaster comes or that disaster doesn't come? Well, of course. But is that important to understand in the middle of destruction when you are on a train headed off a cliff and all the conductor needs to say to you is grab the wheel, grab the lever, turn it, and the disaster will be avoided? It doesn't matter if the plan has always been to go off or always to turn. You'll grab the wheel. You'll turn the lever. You'll avoid death if you can. And so God lays this option very clearly out. And he says to Jerusalem, if you turn from your evil, I will relent from my plans to destroy, to pluck up, and to uproot. We have to make sense of this. When Paul says to note the kindness and the severity of God, we recognize that there is both a just judge in God and a tender father, merciful and full of compassion. The potter here in the story is one that represents the sovereignty of God. The rights and the privileges the potter has over the clay reveals to us the rights and the privileges that God has over creation. But we also see more than just his sovereignty, the heart of God, of what he desires for his people. So we need to consider the nature of God. And a dose of God's nature is a reality check for those who are quick to condemn the world, to write others off because of their sin. Now they'll never be saved, they'll never change. You condemn yourselves and you've already written yourself off of ever being able to change. You struggle with the same kind of addiction or the same anger or the same way of thinking for years and years and years. And you're a Christian. You love Jesus. You've come to church. You've prayed. You've sought counsel. And yet you can't seem to ever get out of the same sense of bondage. And you say, I don't know. I think this is probably just the way I am. Maybe this is my cross to bear. But when we consider God's nature here and what Jeremiah has to say to Jerusalem and to Judah and what he has to say to us, we can say that this healthy dose of God's nature will speak to us who are quick to condemn the world and write others or ourselves off. But it also speaks to those who believe that they will never exhaust God's kindness and therefore will constantly trade on God's compassion even when they sin against him without consequence. They think there's no end to God's kindness. I can continue to do as I wish I'll sin a little here, but as long as I come to church, get the stamp on my soul or tithe or do the right thing every now and then, as long as I'm not too bad, too crazy, as long as I'm doing my best, God's mercy, God's grace, God's kindness will abound and I'll be recipient forever of his grace. That too would be the wrong way to think about God's nature. That too would be the wrong wrong way to think about your faith and your obedience and your relationship to God. So we must neither... would never relent or change depending on if those who desire to seek him truly repent. For those who truly seek God will find him. But we will also neither assume that Christians, because they believe in Jesus and have accepted the work of Jesus for their behalf, can live as they want and that they will never exhaust the kindness of God. Again, Paul tells us that you should never presume upon God's kindness. For God's kindness is meant to lead men to repentance. And so it is true that God's kindness and grace is overflowing abundantly with joy for any of those who need it. And it is inexhaustible. But those who trade on the kindness and sin, as Paul would say in Romans 6, so that grace may abound, do not understand God nor the gospel. And so this study here in Jeremiah is an important lesson for those who are quick to write others off to condemn themselves, or to think that they have an unlimited supply of grace in God in order to live as they'd like. What we see here is that God does indeed change in one sense. He says that he will change. He will change his his plans to destroy or his plans to build, depending on and conditioned upon the response of those to the goodness and kindness of God. Those who hear and receive the goodness and kindness of God and forsake their evil and throw themselves upon the mercy of God, there they will have it. But those to whom have the mercy of God and the kindness of God has been offered, 
and they stick their nose up at it and say, I'm good. Whereas they say here, we will do our own thing and constantly bow down to our own false gods. But God, at one point, intending to do good, will turn and then purpose destruction. Again, the conversation is not about simply can God change at an ontological level, but how he reveals himself and what he intends to do in relationship with us. We actually desires and what he wants. You, some of you might be familiar with the, now I think maybe cult hero, Bob Ross. I watched him as a kid. Some of you may be too young, Aiden, looking at you. And Bob Ross was a painter. He was a really gifted painter. And he painted kind of the same thing every week. But what he would do is paint a mountain scene or a river or something like that. And he would do it from scratch, a blank canvas with his paint. And he was very soft-spoken and a very lovely man. I don't know if he was a Christian. But he would paint. And then, oops, he makes a mistake. He makes a mistake on maybe just a little too wide of a brush stroke. Or he bumps the canvas on his way to get more. What does he do? Does he take the canvas away and throw it? No. He says, that's okay. That's our little friend. We'll make him into a bush. We'll make him into a cloud. There's no mistakes here. We'll make him. He's our little friend. It'll be our friend. And it's just this beautiful way of a master painter turning a mistake into something beautiful. Looking at the finished product, you have never known that he bumped the canvas or made a mistake. And maybe those mistakes were planted for television viewers. Needless to say, he could turn something like a mistake almost like a potter who turns a failed pot into a new vessel. God alone has the ability to change what is broken, what is disaster, what is ruined or spoiled into something new and good and beautiful again. And we can't do it ourselves. And this is the point. God, who is forming a vessel out of his people, can change what he does with us. No matter how spoiled we have been, no matter how much how we have ruined ourselves, no, much, no matter how much we have soiled ourselves, God can make new and beautiful what is broken and ruined. There's a couple things to reveal here about God. First, we learn that God is three things, sovereign, gracious, and just. God is sovereign, of course, meaning he is all-powerful. He's the ruler. He's the king. He can do what he's like. And we see this very clearly in the example of the potter. The clay has no right over the potter, does it? The clay can't say to the potter, I want to be a teacup. I want to be a bowl. I'd like to be a plate, please. No, the potter makes what the potter wants to make. And if he, along the, the way of making that, decides he wants to change it into something else, say anything to the potter. The potter acts according to his own pleasure. Notice what it says there. It said that in verse 4, that the potter will do and rework it into another vessel as it seemed good for him to do. What we see in Ephesians that all things were created through the word of God. And that all things happen according to the counsel of his will. Paul says, according to the pleasure of the will of God. So things happen and things are the way they are and will be the way they will be because it pleases God to be that. Again, we can have a much larger discussion about what really truly pleases God. For Isaiah tells us it pleases the Father to crush the Son. On one level, that's true. On another, we know that it's not. But we see here the potter, as sovereign over the clay, has the right to do with the clay whatever he pleases. The Psalms likewise tell us this that our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. He alone has the right and the prerogative to do with his creation what he wants. And we, as his creatures, have no right to tell him what he must do with us. We learn that God is sovereign over all, but also that he is gracious as well as just. When he says that if I want to build a nation and that nation is evil, I'm going to deal with that evil. He's a just God. He's not going to let evil go unpunished. But he's also gracious, isn't he? If an evil nation, which he intends to destroy, turns and relents from its evil, so will God from its plan to destroy it. God is both in sovereignty, gracious to those who repent of their sin, their rebellion, and their evil, but also just to deal with those who forsake him and refuse to repent. 
So God is sovereignly gracious, graciously sovereign. He is just. He's a ruler and a king. We see who and what God is, but we also see what God will do. He will relent from judgment, and he will relent from mercy. This is an extension of his own prerogative as sovereign. He is the king, issuing whatever edict he sees fit to issue. If he wants to relent from judgment, he can do so. Who knew this well? Jonah did. Jonah knew that if he were to go to Nineveh, as God had told him to go and preach to the Ninevites, they were going to repent, and God was going to spare them. And Jonah did not like the Ninevites. He wanted them to be punished. He wanted God to bring disaster upon them. And so he refused. He got swallowed by a whale. Until he finally figured out that God's graciousness and God's sovereignty is not his to dictate what to do with. God can and will relent from judgment, as Jonah found out. That's the message. Even here, Judah, God will relent from judgment. There's a plan that God is forming against you, and if you return to him, he will not bring judgment upon you. Interestingly enough, in the next chapter, there's another object lesson with the pot, but this time it's not a lump of clay. It's formed and hardened already. And God tells Jeremiah to go and throw the pot down and crush it. At one point, there is an option. At another, there is no option. God can and will relent from judgment according to his own purposes. But he also can and will relent from mercy for those whom he offers freely his grace and his kindness and says, my plan is to form you is to build you, and is to restore you. And the response to that offer is, no, take away the offer. He will relent not only from judgment and give mercy, but will relent from mercy and give judgment. So not only is God sovereign and gracious and just, but he also relents from judgment and relents from mercy. All this reveals to us what God ultimately wants. He wants to remake Israel. We see clearly the heart of the potter here, the heart of God, is to remake, reform, refashion, to build and to restore his people. We can see in some sense, poetically here, that the rebellion of his people pains the heart of God. Of course, we're borrowing language to, to make sense of how God reveals himself to us. God has neither a body nor a heart in the way that we understand it. He doesn't process and experience emotions in the exact same way we do. And yet we see here that God desires that his people change their ways so that he can bless them, restore them, give them justice and mercy, and not judgment and disaster. He desires to remake Israel. That's, this is what he says in verses 12 through 17. He wants to give them the blessing that he has, in pur has purpose for them. But he knows that they will rebel. They'll say that changing is vanity. It's no use changing. We're just going to constantly do whatever we want to do. The pull and desire of our hearts to do evil is too strong. We're too stubborn. And so he says in verse 13, has anyone ever heard of anything like this? God who offers so freely the grace and the blessing of life. In verse 14 he says, does the snow ever leave the mountaintops? Do the mountain rivers ever run dry? Are the foreign waters stop being cold? The answer is no. This is simply part of nature. You, you go into nature and you see that the things are the way they are, but here rebellion against God is so unnatural. It stands contrary to the created purpose of humans to, to rebel against God. And he says, look at creation. They all do what they were created to do, but my people, they're, they're acting unnaturally. Nature does what it must do, but verse 15, my people, though, have forgotten me. They're making offerings to false gods. They made themselves stumble on ancient roads to walk on side roads and not on the highway where God's blessings are to be found, not in accordance with what he has said, but with others have promised empty in vain. And so he knows that if they do not turn and they persist in their wickedness, his justice will demand that he destroys them. His justice will demand that he acts against their rebellion. His heart 
In verse 18 and through 23, we see then Jeremiah's own heart is something very different, however. Jeremiah says, listen, they want to destroy me. They want to take me down. We already know before that they seek to take his life. Here they want to ignore him. They say, we don't need to listen to Jeremiah. We have other prophets, other priests, other counselors. Let's ignore him and put him out. We'll listen to these other people instead. And Jeremiah effectively says, God, you know how I prayed for them. I didn't desire that this would happen to them, but they seem to have chosen their lot. And so do what you said you would do. Bring disaster upon them. You're righteous, God. Deal with the unrighteous. And so Jeremiah's heart, much like the psalmist's heart in other parts of the Psalms, isn't it? Desires judgment. God's heart desires restoration here, but God, or Jeremiah's heart desires judgment. But not out of a sense of petty revenge. It's not simply because, hey, they don't like me and therefore I don't like them. But because it's had enough. It's fed up with the unrighteousness and the wickedness and the hard-heartedness of his own people against God. I'm sure being ignored by his people doesn't help. But it's the, it's the insanity of rebellion against God who offers them grace after grace, opportunity after opportunity, chance after chance, and they continue stiff-necked against them. And he says, give them what they want, Lord. You said you would do it. Now's the time. The well of grace and patience from which Jeremiah would draw his prayers and his intercessions, it's all been dried up. We've run out of patience, run out of grace. I think parents know this feeling fairly well. You've been patient most of the day, but now it's bedtime, and they just won't brush their teeth. They just won't get dressed. They keep reading, keep wrestling, keep running, keep jumping. At some point you say, I'm running dangerously close to empty on patience. You'd like to see what it looks like? Keep going. We'll see. They will heed the warning or they'll heed the consequence. The good news for us and for the world is that God's mercy, unlike Jeremiah's and ours, is infinite. His judgment will not come because he ran out of mercy. If he acts justly against our rebellion, it's not because he ran out of patience. It's because we ran out of time. If Judah indeed is led into captivity, which it will be, if the temple is to be destroyed, which it will be, if Israel is to exist under Persian and Roman occupation, which it will be, it's not because God gave up and ran out of mercy. It's because they, failing to heed the warnings, ran out of time. Consider the words of Isaiah 55. This is Isaiah the prophet speaking to the northern tribe of Israel. He's also in Judah as well. He says, Seek the Lord while he may be found, and call upon him while he is near. What's the implication? There's going to be a time where you can't find him, and he won't be near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the righteous, the unrighteous man, his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Why will God abundantly pardon those who are wicked? Your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. You see the beauty of that statement? God is not like us, and so he's able to forgive when we've run out of forgiveness. Because God is not like us, he's able to extend mercy over and over and over again due to the repentance of our hearts when we will fail to extend mercy to those who seek it and need it. Far from being a passage here about God's wisdom and upholding the affairs of the universe, Yes, God's ways and thoughts are higher and better than ours. He is infinite. He is providentially upholding all things. This passage is not about that. It's about God's disposition as being radically different than us and than our own. Where we are prone to revenge, God is prone to pardon. Where we are prone to faithlessness and anger, God is prone to forgiveness and patience. God himself says, 
I am slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, mercy, and forgiveness. This does not mean that God does not experience or possess anger or wrath. It does not mean that he will never bring about that wrath or anger. But it just means he simply doesn't respond the same way you or I respond. He doesn't run out of grace. is clearest to us and closest to us in the person and work of his son, Jesus. This is where we see the beauty and the work of the potter's heart for the clay. This is where God's compassion and his heart is put on full display for us to experience and to see. The compassion of God's heart is seen in the compassion of Christ himself. The dominant note left ringing in our ears after we read the Gospels The most vivid and arresting element of the portrait of Christ is the way that the Holy Son of God moves towards sinners, touches and heals and embraces and forgives those who least deserve it and yet truly desire it. In other words, the Bible's clearest picture of Jesus presents as one who is compassionate. And the compassionate acts of Christ, they prove to us and demonstrate to us his heart. He says he is gentle and lowly, humble and accessible. He's ready and able to serve, to actively working to meet the needs of his people. He is compassionate above all. Our English word for compassion comes from the Latin, which means to suffer with. The King James Version phrases it, I think, aptly, bowels of mercy. It gets to the true sense of the verb, this idea that it arises from the sort of guts of a person the animating inward core of our being. It's beyond sympathy. It's beyond pity. Compassion feels the misery. It suffers the misery of the helpless. It creates in those who are compassionate and in the heart of Christ himself a deep yearning to help those who are in need. Some of us are... It's not that we're unfeeling. We never feel in our guts, in our bowels, a mercy and a compassion for others. And so the idea that God would be compassionate to us seems foreign. But clearly, in Christ, there is a desire, an inward compassion that he feels in the bowels of his being to yearn for the help of others. And so when we speak as a heart, as, about the heart of Christ as compassionate, what we really mean here is that when he looks upon the condition of the human soul and the fallenness of our world, he experiences a deep and a moving sorrow for us. A sorrow that compels him to want to meet our needs. As one author puts it, this compassion is what makes Jesus get out of bed in the morning. That's imprecise language, but I think we get the idea. And this is precisely Christ, and only Christ who can meet our needs. He alone is the one who can ease our troubles and sorrows. And so he alone, in feeling compassion for us, compelled to move toward us in that compassion, can do so. And so we see when he experiences compassion for the crowds that gathered around him, his desire was to move towards them as their only source of help. Rest. And he felt no compassion to go and help. Nobody else could help. No one else knew anything about medical treatment. No one else could do anything about working the equipment on the thing. The flight attendants are at a loss. And that doctor does not get up, make himself known, and do all that he can to save. He would not only be a terrible doctor, but he would lack compassion and lost sight of the dignity of the human person. Because Jesus knows that he alone can meet our needs, his compassion draws him and drives him to do so. There is no other person we can come to. At first, of course, we see in the Gospels he heals physically, but ultimately he intends to meet the greatest of spiritual needs. He has compassion several times in the Gospel because they were lost like sheep, but he knows that they, were his, they are sheep and he their true shepherd. He has compassion because people were sick and dying. He had compassion, and so he feed He healed the sick. He's our true shepherd and our great physician. He had compassion because people were hungry, and so he fed them because he is our living bread. He had compassion on the crowds that gathered and on the city because they were sorrowful, 
Luke tells us that he wept because others died. Christ becomes our comfort and joy. You see the compassion of Christ bubbling over as the potter for the clay desires to make what he pleases for his glory? This is demonstrated in all of Christ's dealings with men, even in his very incarnation, even in his life and his death. Listen to the words of C.H. Spurgeon. He has a sermon, an excellent sermon, called The Compassion of Jesus. He says, Was he not moved with compassion when he entered into a covenant with his father? A covenant in which he was to be the sufferer, and they the gainers, in which he was to bear the shame that he might bring them into his own glory? He had compassion even as he watched the world descend into sin and decay and rebellion against God. Again, Spurgeon says that his compassion wasn't a transient feeling. He continued still to pity men. He saw the fall of man. He marked the serpent's mortal sting. He watched the trail as the slime of the serpent passed over the fair glades of Eden. Spurgeon's such a poet. He observed man in his evil progress, adding sin to sin through generation after generation, fouling every page of history until God's patience had been tried into the uttermost. And even then, according as it was written in the volume of the book that he must appear, Jesus Christ himself came into the stricken world. When it seemed that even Jesus's or God's own patience would run out, Jesus appears. Nor did his compassion abate when he became the object of scorn himself and a hatred of the cross. For even then he itself is Christ's ultimate act of compassion where he didn't allow his people to be deservedly crushed for their sins but he suffered death for them. So who deserves compassion? Well, in one sense, none of us. But compassion moves towards sinners, towards the helpless, towards the needy. Well, that, friends, is us. Compassion moves toward us in love. And so when we say that the heart of Christ is compassionate, we mean that those who are burdened and crushed by their sin, those broken by the fall, and the inexcusable and undeserving, such as we are, it is those to whom Christ most naturally gravitates. Do you feel the, 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 the care and the compassion of Christ as he moves to sinners? So what does the compassionate heart of Christ really tell us about who he is? It teaches us that the greatest disposition Christ has for his people is love. He has very real and unmovable affections for us. And these affections stream from his innermost being, his heart, as rays stream from the sun. Again, Spurgeon says that his tender heart pities all the griefs of his dear people. There is not a pang that they have, but that his head feels it feels it for all of the members. Still doth he look upon all the imperfections and their infirmities, yet not with anger, not with loss of patience, but with gentleness and sympathy. He is moved with compassion, the Gospels say. And so it is Christ's loving compassion that drives him to suffer for sinners. It is fair to say that Christ is compelled by his own love and compassion to save us. Jesus' heart refuses to let him sit by. Think about that for a moment. The heart of the purest man could not do otherwise. Christ's very compassion is drawn out by our sins. As the author of Gentle and Lowly puts it, several copies of which are on the back, and I highly recommend, Dane Ortland says that the sin of those who belong to God opened the floodgates of his heart for compassion for us. The sin of those who belong to God open the floodgate of his heart of compassion for us. The dam breaks. It is not our loveliness that wins his love. It is our unloveliness. So God has a compassion for sinners. What we see here in the example of the potter is that the heart is for his people to remake them and restore him. Not simply for their good, but for his glory. It is what he, was create, he had created us to be, glorious image bearers that speak of the beauty of his existence and our enjoyment of the relationship we can have with him. Hosea 11 puts it this way. God says that my people are bent on turning away from me and they call out to the Most High and he shall not rise up against them. 
How can I give up on you, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. Look at that language. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. But wait a minute, he said he would. He told them in no uncertain terms, he's coming in wrath. And then he says, to them, it recoils to do it, and so I won't. This isn't God changing who he is. This is the potter making something different out of the clay which was ruined in his hands. So despite the sin that caused God's heart to recoil within him, nevertheless, his, he says, compassion grows warm and tender. And what is the result of God's growing compassion for his people amidst their sinfulness? It's this steady stream of immovable and unshakable love and grace that he doesn't give up on his people even when his people have given up on him. It's his holiness that leads him to refuse to come into wrath. This isn't a wimpy God who just can't stomach it. It's his holiness which desires the glory and the restoration of his people. His holiness is bound up in his compassion. He says, I'm not going to do it because I am God and not man. Man would come in wrath, but I am not man. I am God. He says, I am the holy one in your midst. So the reason I come is because I'm holy and I'm God, not because I'm man. Well, how is that possible? How is it that a holy God cannot keep company, which who cannot keep company with sin, somehow manages to keep company with sinners? That should be the question you're asking. This God who cannot keep company with sin because he is holy somehow manages to keep company with sinners. How is it possible? How is it that he is not compelled by his holiness to give us up to this necessary and just wrath, to indeed judge us like his justice demands must be? led Christ to give himself up to God's wrath on the cross for us. It was there that he endured for all of his people, for all time, the holy wrath of a holy God against an unholy people. And so the Father gave up his Son, and the Son gave up his life, in order that you and I would not be given up to the full veracity of God's judgment against sin, the judgment that we deserve because of a rebellion against God, the judgment that we deserve and that Christ did not. How is this possible, we wonder? How is it possible that Christ would do this for us? The answer here is compassion. It is the heart of the potter who desires not to throw the lump of clay away, but to make it new again. This same compassion is for us even now. The same Christ who wept at the tomb of Lazarus weeps with us in our lonely despair. The same one who reached out and touched lepers puts his arm around us today when we feel misunderstood and sidelined. The Jesus who reached out and cleansed messy sinners reaches into our souls and answers our half-hearted plea for mercy with the mighty, invincible cleansing of one who cannot bear to do otherwise. In other words, Christ's heart is not far off. For he does all of this now by his own spirit. We are comforted by Christ's compassion through the indwelling of his spirit in our hearts. That's the blessing and the gift of those who are in Christ. Having received the spirit, we are comforted by Christ's own dwelling presence, his compassion with us. Daily, we are reminded and often confronted of his earnest desire for our good through the spirit's faithful ministry to believers. All graces of assurance, all graces of comfort, of peace, of graces of faith, they're granted to us through the Spirit's work. All the wants of our hearts are met by the compassion of Jesus' heart flowing out for us in His Spirit. And so, three points of application, and we'll end. As we consider Jeremiah and the object lesson of the potter and the clay and the very heart of Christ, we must first move with compassion like our own Savior. Faced with the, with the picture of Christ's compassion for his people, moved towards sinners because of his great love and mercy, we must also move with compassion towards others 
like our Savior. Again, and this is the last time I'll quote Spurgeon. He says, The patient watcher by the bedside may be serving the Lord and following his example, as well as the most diligent teacher or the most earnest preacher of the glorious gospel. All means that can be used to mitigate human suffering are Christ-like, and they ought to be carried out in his name and carried to the utmost perfection possible. What he means is that anytime you go and do acts of service, love, kindness, mercy, you move towards others in compassion, you move like Christ. Even if it's caring for a sick loved one at home this morning, even if it's giving to somebody on the street, not worrying about what they'll spend that money on, even if it's going and giving to a young mother who's in need of resources, even if it's going and spending time with orphans or visiting those in prison, that is what it means to be like our saviors. But it's not just those who are outwardly obvious in need of compassion. We must move towards each other in compassion. Simply ask how our souls are doing and you will find in every one of our lives a place where we need compassion extended to us. And you become the hands and feet of Jesus, loving and caring for others. And so, brothers and sisters, first move with compassion towards others like Jesus moved towards compassion toward us. Secondly, do not allow the despair of your sin to blind you to the compassion of Christ. You may be here with saying, yes, Christ is compassionate, but not to me. My sin is too great. My ways were too evil. I've done too much. I've said too much. I can't take it back. I've burned too many bridges. And there's no way that Christ's compassion is really going to make a difference in my life. It's good for you. It won't work for me. Well, friend, don't let the despair of your sin, and I'm grateful that you feel the weight of it, but don't let the despair of your sin blind you to the compassion of Christ. Well, it's been said that however deep sin goes, the mercy of Christ goes deeper still. Christian, if you are in Christ, it may be tempting to view Christ as severely displeased with you because of your sin. But his heart is never against you if you are in Christ. While he may be at times willing to discipline his people whom he loves, he does not ultimately turn them away. It is a great deception if we convince ourselves that Jesus would not want us because he is too holy to love a sinner. Rather, his compassion secures our acceptance. But this is not so for those who are outside of Christ's love. Those who today do not know the saving power of Jesus' death and resurrection. And though his compassion and sacrifice are sufficient to save you, your continued rejection of his grace will prove only to usher in his very real and very present anger against sin. Unless you count your lot with his, he will count your lot with your sins. So we must move in compassion towards others like our Savior, and we must not allow the despair of our sins to blind us to the compassion of Christ. And lastly, we must rejoice in the great love. We must remember that in the hands of the potter, our brokenness can be made new. We must remember that though we have ruined ourselves with sin, we can be restored and made into a new vessel. Though we were destined for destruction because of Christ, the work of the Spirit, in turning us from our sin, opening our eyes to the gravity of His holiness and the despair of our wickedness, we, like the clay that came ruined, is made new. Indeed, in Christ, if you are in Christ, Paul says, you are a new creation. Indeed, if you are united to Christ by faith, you are His. You've been crucified with Him. And it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives within you. This is what we must rejoice in. This beautiful picture of God's heart and compassion in the Not simply acknowledge and give thanks as we pray before supper, but to rejoice with singing and gladness, to overflow with thanksgiving, that we then are moved to compassion. That's what we do when we gather, to remind ourselves of the work and the compassion of Christ and suffering for us. That's what we do when we gather weekly to encourage one another in our community groups. That's what we do when we gather to celebrate what the Lord has done in generations past or when we celebrate what God is doing in saving new people to himself, it's celebrating the goodness and rejoicing in the kindness and compassion of God.
That is the gospel. Though we sinned, and though he did not, he became sin. Thank you for your mercy and your compassion. It is greater and more inexhaustible than we could ever understand. And yet we have in some small way tasted it this morning. I pray that as we continue to contemplate and sing of his great love and mercy, we would do so loudly and full of thanksgiving. For we have compassion. We, in your hands, have been made new. You have made us for yourself. Love you, Lord. I give praise to you as always in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more, or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.